Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters of Madness and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. And Daniel. Say hi, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. This evening, we're joined by a very special guest, makeup and special effects artist, Mr. Jeff Farley. Jeff, how the hell are you doing this evening? Good, Justin. How's everybody doing? No complaints. No complaints, man. Happy to talk to you. We got a lot of questions for you. You're very popular. Oh, uh, you know, it's you would not be able to figure that out by just seeing me in my regular home life. <laughs> Let's just build the foundation here. Start at the beginning. Take us back in time. You're a youngster. What kind of movies are you watching? What are you reading? Are you in the comics? You're making models. What got your juices flowing? I had a brother who bought the Frankenstein model kit and those old Aurora kits. Must have been sometime in the towards the late sixties and I saw it and, and I was I, I was floored by it. And soon after that I caught the tail end of King Kong and I ended up not knowing what the heck I was watching because I caught, you know, caught it like almost three quarters of the way and so I didn't even know what I was watching at the time and because I was like five years old. What else I said? I saw Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Mm. Yes. Uh, I, I came home from school one day and back when they when they run movies in the afternoon on television when i was a kid and i see this thing fall off a cliff and it's a cyclops and i go wow and i watched the rest of it and again i didn't know what i was really watching i don't even know if we had a tv guide at home at the time so it wasn't until years later i started reading famous monsters then i learned all of these things but i had been really i think the bug bit me when I saw Equinox, when it opened up in Los Angeles in 1971. I had seen Dave Allen and Dennis Muren on TV that morning. Maybe the morning it was released, I think. Had a couple of the stop motion models with them, and I was four. What can I say? I mean, just seeing... <laughs> this right. I saw this, and I saw Dave moving it around, and I went, that's what I want to do. And cooler than that, years later... It turns out I found out that Equinox had been shot in my neighborhood. I shot around my neighborhood when I was a kid, and all the areas that I used to visit and hang out when I was younger, they had shot Equinox out of the original version, and then even the release version was shot in a, in a place I used to hate to go on field trips as a kid called Descanso Gardens. And years later, I find out, oh, it's of course, you know, I hated the place when I was a kid. Now I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> but the coolest thing was when Dave Allen gave me, I don't know if you can see this too well, but this is the book. Mm -hmm. this, oh. this is the book for me, Equinox. This is like the only surviving book from the film. The other two were lost. So, but that was when I first met Dave Allen. And I'd been after I'd spend time hanging out at Forey Ackerman's place. And I mean, as a kid, I, that's, that's pretty much how my life was. I found out that all these guys like Jim Danforth and Dennis Murin and Dave Allen, Rick Baker, and all these guys like lived around where I did. And I could just look them up in the phone book. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. And, and spending all this time, about three years at Forey Ackerman's place when I was a kid. I mean, him calling me up to say, hey, come over New Year's to meet Ray Harryhausen. What 14 oh, year wouldn't be more excited? So I was I'll shit was, my pants. Yeah. <laughs> more than that, soon after Star Wars was released, a guy named Richard Chu and his family moved in about three houses down from us, and he's one of the editors of Star Wars. I used to look after his kids when him and his wife would be out, and he'd let me hold his Oscar and. <laughs> 
that was my childhood. I grew up in a neighborhood full of actors and directors living in Glendale. It's a, it's an industry town. So it turns out all my neighbors were directors and actors. And, and most of them, I didn't even know. I didn't know that I went to school with uh, the son of the star of uh, King Kong escapes with mm-hmm. Rhodes son. And I didn't even know we were like best friends. And I never asked Brian reason who his dad was. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I knew a guy named Darren Vent, who's his uncle is Jesse Vent from Forbidden World. And Oh, wow. His dad, his dad is an actor also, but yeah, they just lived blocks away from me. And that's how I sort of fell into all this stuff. I just, I loved monster movies and Ray Harryhausen and Godzilla and all these really cool things that were so much cooler than boring dramas and stuff. And even Agreed. Westerns. Now I love Westerns, but I, you know, but then I hated them. <laughs> that is pretty much how I fell into the, the whole thing. And like everybody else, I just started playing around with stuff. And eventually I started making the rounds and making phone calls and getting hired by guys like James Cummins and John Beekler and Lance Anderson brought me in on Serpent of the Rainbow and kept me around for three months. And so it's like a lot of other guys. You just start showing your book around and eventually somebody will say, you know, we have a couple extra hundred bucks a week and we can hire you. <laughs> <laughs> Back a couple hundred bucks was worth something. You're also a talented painter. Is that something you've always had an interest in or did you start doing that recently? I tried it when I was a kid and I wouldn't even know if it was good or not, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I remember in elementary school, we were asked to do portraits, like self-portraits. Whatever portraits were picked would end up going to, I don't remember what museum in Washington, D.C. was going to like show all of these paintings and self-portraits from kids from all over the U.S. And I think mine was one of the ones picked, if I, if I remember correctly, but that was a long, long time ago. But it was awful. It had to be terrible. <laughs> but I just, I suddenly got more into sculpting and things like that mm. and drawing and stuff and painting kind of went by the wayside unless I was painting a rubber creature so painting is something I wrote painting on canvas is something I only picked up before four years ago maybe or, or maybe maybe close to five maybe and and pieces but I haven't really shown much I mean really I haven't really gotten around that much and I'm really sort of still I don't consider myself to be a pro at all I'm just I'm still kind of getting my feet wet but I gotta have something to do at my old age (laughs) I'm already pushing 60 so I'm gonna be 59 week from past Saturday next Saturday I'm gonna be like 59 so it's kind of like I gotta do something with my old age otherwise this industry is gonna kill me (laughs) (laughs) You're oh. doing special effects in a flick. What was your first you. one? I mean, that was easy. I, that was byproduct of meeting Ray Harryhausen over at Corey Ackerman's place. And there was a guy there. I mean, I was going to in a town called, like I said, Glendale. It turns out this other guy whose name was Douglas Barrett Jones. He's not the Doug Jones that everyone knows these days, but he had been working at the Berman Studio and a few other places on shows like Empire of the Ants and stuff like that. So he was there that night and we start talking and turns out you know he goes oh you live in glendale too hey maybe i'll give you a call on something soon and about two weeks later he calls me up and says i've got a bunch of spiders that need all of these scenes have to be dremeled off and there's like three four hundred of them <laughs> uh, called the spiders and steve neal i guess it somehow it was involved in it or something like that and just shipped all of these raw castings to him to have them finished up a couple of my school friends and i spent a couple of weeks just drumming spider after spider after oh. spider just like drumming these seams down off of them and i mean we're supposed to get each get a mask out of it which we never got <laughs> it was cool you know something steve was supposed i think steve i think the promise was that it, it would be like i don't 
don't blame him at all for it. It's like it's not it's nothing to worry about or anything. And and be honest with you, it's it's all cool because we were all just having a good time. I mean, this is like we were just like fourteen or so, acting like we're big movie moguls yeah. or something. <laughs> You're talking Ghostbusters, Steve Neal. Ghostbusters Fright Night, Steve Neal, right? Yeah, that's that's him. I mean, I didn't even meet him until just maybe a couple of years ago or so. I mean, we didn't we never were across, our paths were even crossed. It turns out that he was living around my neighborhood too, and but our paths just never crossed up until just a few years ago and always been a big fan of his work though i mean he's just amazing he's one of those guys that inspired me in a few weeks we're talking to steve yeah. you know, i'm going to tell him to get you your mask uh, no, okay. <laughs> i don't want him to feel like terrible about that or anything like, what are you talking about <laughs> that, that's you know, probably gonna be the response the, probably, the interview will probably end at that moment <laughs> <laughs> oh no i got a question for you i'm just gonna hit you with it jeff yes first meeting with charlie band oh my god you know something <laughs> that i do have been i think he must have come around john beekler's shop during the empire days and i do remember seeing him on the set over at the studio in italy but he was so busy trying to round up money to finish arena at the time which was i mean just a troubled production from day one i mean once we got there we were told immediately don't unpack <laughs> it's like <laughs> probably going back home Chris started trickling in but you know but, but of course we did finish it but it wasn't until must have been around the full moon days when i first really had to start dealing with him personally so i seem to remember telling him that i was around during the empire days and i was seeing him and stuff like that but it must have been i'd worked on mandroid over at alchemy but that wasn't it but what would we do that i think it may have been when we got the killer off mark williams and unfortunately just passed away they had a few shows that were in progress that were ready to shoot at least a couple of shows and, and with mark passing away they had nobody to handle the stuff so they brought chris Birchneider and i in to take the shows over so that must have been during that period that we met him for the first time and he always struck us as being very evasive <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very appropriate. Dubbed him the amazing evasive man. <laughs> well, you know, Sonny, I'll be honest with you, despite, and, and believe me, there. I mean, I don't even know if Charlie likes me anymore. I mean, honestly, <laughs> but honestly, listen, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him also because, I mean, he helped me fulfill a lot of goals in life and, you know, what I wanted to do. And he sent me overseas a number of times and he gave me, even though Fred Owen Ray gave me my first title credit, Charlie consistently gave gave us good credits and gave us, you know, box, you know, credit and, and things like that. I mean, he's an okay guy. I mean, it's like, and, and to be honest with you, he's done a lot of really cool things in his life. And I've tried to talk to him about his early life and, and what it was like working with Steve Eves on the Avenger and stuff. He won't talk about that stuff at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I never really got a chance to talk to Albert about that stuff during Primeval's. Again, working with those guys. What can I say? I mean, those guys have real, are real film history and mm. you can't help but have some if you're if you're into film you can't have some sense of awe working with them it's just sometimes it's not all it's cracked up to be a lot of your credits talking about the full moon stuff so what's your specialty with makeup effects i was afraid someone's going to ask me that question because i feel like one of those the jack of all trades master of none i design i sculpt i mold i cast i paint i do really crappy mechanics sometimes Sometimes they work. A lot of times, I'm mechanically minded, and those are the things that always frustrate me the most. And if they work, I don't even know why they work. <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think I've gotten to the point where I mean, I enjoy letting other people do the work if I can. 
<laughs> for a long time. I've been doing a lot of my own stuff lately, but still, I mean, really, I think designing, sculpting is always what everybody goes for because they, they're the most creative aspects of it. Once you start getting to certain other steps, it just becomes more technical and, yeah. and a lot more in the way of timing. Ugh, I got like this many hours, I got to wait for something to come out of the, the, the oven to see if it works or not. I got to do it all over again. <laughs> and your time's like running short. But yeah, I mean, I think the design and, and sculpture phase, phase are always some of my favorites. And going to set used to be a real joy for me. A lot of that lately hasn't been so much fun because there's so much pressure. Everyone's so worried about detail, things that, that ultimately don't matter, that it's kind of ruined all the fun. And, you know, it's like that whole Dick Smith to Robert De Niro thing. You're just such a paranoid perfectionist that you just frankly take the joy out of it <laughs> but still there are times i mean there's there are some times when it really is fun going to set and doing things especially if a, if you're doing a complicated gag that pulls off and you look like a hero it's like there's nothing better than that going getting your cup of coffee and standing there and holding it with great gusto and <laughs> So which Thank one you. is that? Because I'm I'm asking you right now. Which is the one that you say is you at your best? You know something? It's a, it's a, a sci-fi channel movie that Stan Lee produced. It was called Lightspeed. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff that I like. I'm very happy with, with a lot of stuff. But Lightspeed was one of those cases where the executive producer gave me a decent amount of money and not as much time as I wanted. But we got a really good, I had like 10 people working for me. And we really, in 18 days, we cranked out a full body reptile suit guy with the full cowl and prosthetic and gloves and feet and the best part about it was most of the film they didn't use most of that stuff that was only for a few shots and the rest of the film he's covered and we just had like a man my assistant Ross Talon had this great time in Utah just you know having to put gloves on the guy and a cowl and prosthetic you know like a, a facial prosthetic glue it all down and put teeth in them not even contact lenses it was a really great experience and it was guy was the second in a three picture deal that I had with Jason Connor. <laughs> I did three movies back to back with Jason Connery and that was the longest and the most fun. I've never seen that. I want to watch is it the Marvel version of The Flash? Well, it's not even Marvel. It's when Stan had uh, Power Entertainment. It's sort of, you know, something Don Fauntleroy who shot Jeepers Creepers. He shot both those films and mm -hmm. he's a super nice guy. He's I really liked working with him a lot. And and he I, he's a really good cinematographer, so he always made Python look great. And it's a film that suffers from a lot of problems. You'll you'll have a good time, have a beer, watch it. And oh, I'll enjoy it. That's that's my. Yeah. It looks like my cup of tea. Oh, it de it definitely must be then because I mean even those who don't enjoy it, I think they do secretly. <laughs> Jeff, before we get too far away from Full Moon, I mentioned it earlier, so I'm just going to hit you with it. You got to just tell us about the turmoil on set of Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys that Mr. Uh, Nicolau uh, had to endure. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, what I was saying earlier basically is like, I mean, I felt bad for Ted because he just it was such a, a no-win situation for him. Ted's a really good director, and Courtney Joyner is an amazing screenwriter, and Courtney said it was just the toughest thing he'd ever written in his life because once the sci-fi guys came in, it was they just stood over his shoulder and, and we want this and we want that and change this and it just became a really mechanical process and so i think it kind of worked its way throughout the entire situation because when we 
first re received the script in 2002, we told we were going to do the job, Chris Bergschneider and I, we were told it was going to shoot in Italy, even though the entire thing takes place in San Fernando Valley. We we're trying to figure out how that was all going to work, but we figured, what the heck, a trip to Italy, we we're going to live in a castle for a few weeks. I mean, what the heck? Let's go have a good time and get this thing done. And then it kind of slipped away again, and we didn't know what was going on until 2004, about March, when Charlie called Chris and I each and said, we we're going to end up going to Bulgaria to do this show with the new executive producer. And so long story short, we went and did it. And poor Ted, he just kept looking at me every day and saying, I don't know what I'm doing here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just like as Ted so we both don't know it's like I don't think any of us know why we're here you know we got through it and I'll tell you I honestly thought it was a problematic show because we had we asked I think 12 weeks to build stuff and then we were given seven weeks and then we realized we're gonna have two weeks in shipping so <laughs> five weeks and this was at the I think we started toward the mid part of June 2004 and we were scheduled to be in Bulgaria by early August and shoot for a month or so and then it was going to air in December of that year so I think it was five months total to do the entire production. I felt off. I tried to play it up and make it sound like it was good, but okay. I felt terrible. And, and it wasn't until Jeff Franklin, the executive producer, called me and said he was really happy with everything that I, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. And <laughs> I can't knock it. it. It's one of those films. It's just it's so odd and so disjointed and, and away from the original film in a lot of ways, even though it still contains a lot of the similar elements. I'm glad we we got to do it everybody was doing a versus film that summer mm -hmm. and getting one of them for some reason so. <laughs> you know with those it's kind of full moon was one of the first ones to actually do that because essentially those films are basically like what if movies they might end up making them canon or they might just not and it doesn't matter sometimes those movies are just fun i think hindsight has whatever people might have thought even the fans might have thought whenever they first came out i think in hindsight everybody's cool with they should be cool with them and if not we don't need that kind of negativity anyway yeah True. Yeah. yeah, very, very true. You know, yeah, you're right about films that they put out that sort of some films would like kind of go nowhere. Like we thought Blood Dolls. We, mm -hmm. we honestly thought that Blood Dolls would continue on because it was it was a fun project. I mean, yeah. we had a little more time than usual on it. And it was I mean, Charlie was in top form. We had great time working on it. Everybody got along well. And I think it has some of our best stuff in it. And it was funny, too. It was actually really funny and then sweet in the same way uh, some way also but it just didn't go anywhere he, he, he I mean, it was sort of in some way sort of a spinoff from you know bright uh, was it or, or head of the family so mm -hmm. now i guess I'll talk about doing bright of the head of the family again hopefully they'll do it we, we got to go back in time because sure. you've hit arena which i only just saw officially from bookend beginning to end oh just maybe a couple years ago whenever they first when the empire set came out and i was like arena i've never actually seen that robot jocks as a kid one of my favorites but if we scroll on up a little bit more demon wind there you go. That's what that's, did you do on that, man? That movie is awesome. I've been working for Lance Anders for a while since Serpent in the Rainbow. Lance, I was one of Lance's regular crew members and Lance gets demon. He has the show and he calls me in and Brian Pennicus, 
John Blake came in and I mean, there was a few people like a few really good people coming in. There were, of course, Dave Anderson was there and we're all prepping the show, building, sculpting all the pieces and molding them, getting them all ready to run. And the show runs out of money. So, oh no. So they go on hiatus for about three months in which Lance keeps all the sculptures around. Three months later, they go back in production and Lance calls me up and I'm the only original member to go back to work on the show. Suddenly Dave Anderson. David Atherton's on the show and Scott Coulter and Dan Fry and Roger, I think Roger McCoyne was there and AJ Workman and whoever else I'm, I'm missing. I mean, I'm sorry, but it was like a bunch of people that had, some people had worked on the blob that I've been working with and asked me to get them up there. And so, but we got all this stuff done and went to set and it was a crazy shoot and it was really fun. You have to say it was about as crazy as the film conveys it's just kind of like the movie crazy chuck more yeah, here was chuck's favorite statement the entire show he looked through the lens and he'd go close enough for show business and <laughs> that's pretty much how the whole show went and it was really cool though because when we were you know we we're prepping it i was i was living in glendale and going to or it's living in maybe well, i can't remember where i was living maybe i was living in glendale at the time or something but i was going to lance's working and then eventually it turns out they were shooting the interior so close to where the shop was i ended up just crashing at scott coulter and dan fry's place and sleeping on their couch during production since it was only a few blocks from where the show was being shot so it was like a really easy shoot like you know <laughs> I actually got to sleep it was really well organized though as i do remember it was actually better organized than most shows like that go we had also a really cool situation was our second second ad was oh shoot what was her name oh great i mean this is where my my, my mind is slipping me, but she was married to Lou Diamond Phillips. I am going to set the first morning and Dave Atherton meets me in the parking lot and goes, your first makeup is on Lou Diamond Phillips. And I'm going, yeah, right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, tell me a good, that's a good one. Yeah. Tell you know. And I walk in and there's Lou sitting on the couch. And <laughs> so I make him up as a demon. And in the film, he's like peering through some boards in a window. And if you look, if you freeze on it, you can see it's him. It's clearly him. And he's credited in the film as Lewis Jim Phipps. And I just wish I could remember his wife's name now because, I mean, she was so cool. But, yeah, it was like, I mean, it was just God, was such a, you know. I have to ask because, yeah, that movie was fun. It was freaking yeah. awesome. Somehow or another, it just, I don't know, I can't even remember. It's been a long time since I've watched it, but I remember the effects were awesome. The music was cool. Everything about it was cool, and it's just one of the, why have I not heard of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the whole deal with the kung fu magicians, I mean. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, now you're right. That kind of gets. <laughs> We're just yeah. so laughing so hard. And everybody got along so well. The actors really got along. You know, so it really was like a family unit. It was also one of the films that Tom Calloway shot. And I had worked with Tom. I mean, God, I think his first solo film, if I recall, I don't know, maybe it's his second, but I worked with him already on the Slumber Party Massacre, too. You know, I've ended up working with Tom, like, throughout the years, over and over again. We worked together. Last few years, we did something together, and we just are still, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's like, it was really a really fun shoot. You provided all the behind-the-scenes stuff for the Blu-ray release, right? I did. All those, all those still photos were supplied by me. I just 
happened to have a bunch still in, in my possession and that I took at the shop. And I figured, you know, when I heard that Vinegar Syndrome was doing the release, Bruce Holchek contacted me and said, hey, you know, they're going to do this. You want me to, to let them know? And I said, yeah, of course. I'll be happy to supply them with stuff. Now I'm just waiting for my copy of the Scanner Cop 2 Blu-ray set that I, I was promised from the interview I did for that last year. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you keep getting gypped. I want to get you stuff. That. <laughs> that should teach me. I mean, you know, I should be like, I should be smarter than that. Nearly everybody on that, on Demon Wind is kind of going underground. Have you been in touch with anybody? All the cast, our crew since those days? The cast? Pretty much no. Like I said, Tom Calloway and I have been in touch over the years because we've worked together so many times. But as far as the actors, I mean, a lot of those are just like one shot. I think I talked to Steven Quadros a bit, maybe afterwards. And because I think he went on and did Shock Him Dead afterwards. And I think I might have talked to him a little bit about that. That really went nowhere. You know, yeah, no, everybody's, everybody did. It's just, it's one of those films that just kind of I don't think anybody should be embarrassed about and I don't think really many people are from what I can see from the interviews everybody seems to have like really fond memories of it but some people went on to more respectable careers I guess and the industry you know I mean we're you know here we are we're still kicking around that movie just changes it's so fun because it changes it's like all right it's a horror movie i got it even despite the kung fu magicians but then it just turns into a fantasy almost near the end where there's wizards fighting and alien guys and I oh don't know. yeah <laughs> I, I do have to you know something yes i mean and here i am saying i don't keep in touch with anybody from the show but of course i do it's like richard goodbye you know he's one of the guys he played the guy who shows up with his girlfriend later and he gets his head ripped off he as a matter of fact cleve hall made that head because Cleve had done the previous film with the same production company, Twisted Nightmare, and played their killer in that. And because they didn't hire him on Demon Wind, they gave him a job to do on it. At least they, they wanted to you know, throw him something at least. So he did this really cool severed head of Richard Goodbye. But yeah, Richard and I are another our, our guy. You know, He's another guy that I just run into all the time. For years, we ended up working together on Fred Owen Ray films. My first solo film was called Blood Nasty this Linnea Quigley film that's never been released in the U.S. He ended up taking over as director. He was one of the stars in it, and he ended up taking over as director. And But he's just really, I mean, he's had a really good career, gone on to direct a lot of stuff, and just one of the nicest guys in the world. So there is one guy that I keep in touch with. That's good to hear. I got to yeah. ask, what did you do on Pet Cemetery? You know, I was there for the beginning for the first maybe month or two, getting everything prepped, life casts, helped do cast of Denise Crosby, building her a dummy. I worked on the cat, the dead cat. Lance's wife did all the fur work, but I did all the, the skeleton and, mm. and packing and, and oh, cover. Cool. Uh, the dead cat they peel off the that was a fake cat and yeah i remember doing some you know like life cast work and stuff but i didn't stick around i can't remember what came up something came up and i ended up moving on while everybody else finished up the show but i was i mean i'm really happy to at least been there and on the show and yeah. still got so but it was all sort of prep work till they started getting to the other stuff but I, I think i had a show or something like that that came up that i had to do so but i don't remember what it was at the time i'd have to look at my my credit list that's too long Good. Well, yes, it is. It is long. Yeah. How did you get involved with Babylon 5? I originally worked on the pilot, and I was to do the makeup for Delenn. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't seem to get it for some reason. I was just not. Maybe it was the fact that we had like, did practically did an all-nighter, and then I had enough time to go home and take a shower before I went to do the, the makeup. And we got there, and there was no craft service. They didn't have coffee. They had nothing. We were all just like, everybody was in sort of a bad mood. 
And I thought it'll go anywhere. This show will never go anywhere. This is a, the pilot that'll never get shown or something. And so that day didn't end up too well for me. But the makeup got done, and but it was the the concept was just too extreme, and, and of course it ended up getting toned down a lot later. But later I ended up going to work over at Optic Nerve, over John Volich's shop. We're all working on everything, Buffy and Babylon and whatever. But you know, Buffy had just started, so I was there from like the second episode on. And but eventually. Eventually, they needed a new supervisor. It was towards the end of the fourth season. It wasn't working out with the supervisor they had, so they decided to let him go, and John asked me to come aboard. I won't, I won't go into detail about the whole situation, but I ended up going in one day as a crew member, and by the end of the day, I was a supervisor, and that lasted throughout the entire fifth season and all the way through the all the TV movies and ended up getting an Emmy nomination for in the beginning. And It was really gratifying because it was, so, it was such a well- oiled machine when i first went i thought it was completely disjointed and then by the time i stepped back in it was a well-oiled machine everybody was great to work with and never ever have to say i'm sorry that i did it you know it was a it was a great experience Jeff, you worked a lot on film and television. Just from the outside looking in, it seemed like there'd be a lot less of a time constraint working in television. Is that, which medium do you prefer? It depends on what you're doing in, in television. If you're doing just a small thing, it can be pretty simple and pretty easy. But if you're doing an entire show, it could be like doing an entire low-budget movie in a week. So it's sometimes a lot more complicated than doing a low-budget film. Sometimes, I mean, it's hard to say what I'd prefer. I mean, I think I just... I mean, I go hot and cold sometimes on things and, and I have to be, I'll do a job, even if it's not the most exciting job in the world, I like to be challenged. So, but if it's a challenging job, it doesn't matter if it's television or film, it's, you know, or, or a private client or something like that. It's, you know, it, it should be a joy. Do you get a lot of side work for haunted attractions and stuff? Not really. You know, something I was involved in maybe a couple of things, just preliminary stuff, but there were things that never really got off the ground. But I, I kind of never was able to get into that because I was always so busy on other things. Now that I see where the money is, and I see like how well everybody's doing, I kind of wish now that I had. <laughs> I I'm, I'm jumping into painting now because it's so it's so much easier than doing all the other jobs, though. I'm Right now, I'm looking for a challenge that is is like still has art involved in it, but it doesn't have to. I don't have to deal with other people, and I don't have to wait for school to give me an inspiration or money. I've got a million ideas, and I'd like just to do them all, but I probably never will. But it's such a difference at this point. I'm just been. I'm as far as film and, and all that stuff go. I'll probably never be able to give up my day job. You said you like challenges. Today, what has been your most challenging special effects project? I was lucky enough to be busy all last year. I was on a show called Abruptio, which is a young couple, Evan and Carrie Marlowe, and they concocted the story, basically. And I, honestly, I never even read the script. I told, I said, don't even bother sending me a script. I'm just making a bunch of puppets. As long as I know what I have, what, they, what you want them to look like, I'm fine. But it's an entire film using puppets instead of human actors. But they have a really good cast doing the voices, like Jordan Peele, Robert England, Christopher McDonald. It's Sid Haig's final film, provided the voice for it, but it'll be his final film. And it kept me busy through the entire year. It was a real challenge trying to figure out how to do it in the tiny confined space that I have here since we were under lockdown. Mm. And these are like head and shoulder puppets and i had to figure out a way to 
and I was doing sometimes up to four at once. I did the start at, a, at another shop, spent the first four puppets I did in another shop. And when I finished up with that was right before the lockdown happened. And I still had maybe another eight or nine, maybe close to maybe 10 puppets that I had to do for them. I ended up doing them all out of my living room, tiny little space, built a little table I could work on along with the other tables I have. And I'm just, I don't know how I did it. The only thing I did is I baked the foam elsewhere, but everything else I did here, it was a challenge I'd ever had. But they they were happy with the stuff and it should be odd. I mean, they're, they're really odd looking. They're kind of almost lifelike in a way real kind of doll-like in another way and stuff so it should be kind of a weird juxtaposition hopefully audiences will like it oh hopefully i'll know what it what it's all about when i see it so. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier prime eve while scoping imdv resume i mean it's up here at the top is that it's in post-production so they're actually doing primevals wasn't that david allen's white whale the movie that he kept trying to make or whatever is that the one that's the one, yeah. Dave started that around 1965, like shortly after they finished Equinox. I think it was 67 maybe or so, but it was, yeah, shortly after they finished Equinox, they concocted this idea. And, and it had been like through almost every studio in town at one point or another. It was even over at Hammer Films for a while when it went under the title uh, Zeppelin versus Pterodactyls. But when Dave went to work with Charlie Band, there's, there, I mean, you, there, the, there's that great Cine Fantastic magazine full issue on the making of it it's it's great it was published around 1980 or so you can still get copies of it but i mean it tells you everything about the lead up to the making of it but of course by the time they met it uh, or started making it at that point i was a matter of fact when i first met Dave. by the time they started making it it all fizzled and fell apart again it wasn't until 93 or so charlie was able to finally get the money together to shoot it i was i mean it was wild i mean i i there were days i just i wish that i'd never heard the word primevals <laughs> on the show over in romania it was like i mean it was it was so tough at times it was me and one other guy from the states named jason i, I can't remember his last name but a really good guy and the guy was i mean really i mean i couldn't have done it without him and we had a, a guy in, in romania helping us and uh, i think chris burke schneider helped us from time to time we were helping each other on our shows because he was doing josh kirby time warrior at the same time over there and so i mean and i went over there with a box full of stuff that i brought with me only to find out that if i hadn't brought it with me i wouldn't have anything to work with oh. it was like you're asking for stuff i had god i'm glad i brought this latex and i'm glad i found this bag of plaster at the studio here in romania and, I, and it was just like that. I mean, day by day. But now that I look back on it, I mean, it's one of those experiences I'd never, ever trade because it was so great. And it was a big adventure for everybody and made a lot of really good friends. And I still am kicking myself for spending nine weeks with Juliet Mills and never once asking her about Beyond the Door. And um. yeah, I can't <laughs> believe that. And she's so sweet too. And I, I know she would have talked about it. And I just was like, why? <laughs> 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 uh, but you know it was such a great adventure and chris endicott bless his heart has been carrying the torch ever since dave passed away in in 99 and to, you know to get this thing done and charlie i you know something and honestly i thought charlie never would finish it i mean for a while i really thought he was just gonna just say it's too expensive and we just can never get this finished i give him a lot of credit you know because i know they're doing it for, for next to nothing still but charlie put all of his weight behind it still i'm really really pleased with him over that i'm so happy that that it's finally getting done they have done some had one more live action shoot 
shoot they had to do, which they did. I think they shot in Vegas or something on soundstage, but that's done. You know, not only that, I got to work with Robert Cornthwaite, Dr. Carrington from Thing from Another World. He was there. Amazing experience. He was such a nice guy. And I got to play all these hominid creatures in it because, you know, there's all the, the hominids in it. Steve Neal built those suits him and Dave Matherly, and I can't remember who else was on his crew, but they built those suits, and Mark Rappaport supplied everything else, including this incredible, like, half-body, full-scale Yeti, with, like, up to about mid-chest. It just was amazing. It looks so good. I got to play a bunch of hominids. I got to, like, actually get in the suits, because they fit me also, and I got to go in and, like, shadow box against, you know, non-existent stop-motion characters along with Kevin Mangold and another guy named Billy Scudder was playing hominids and he got really really sick and ended up having to relinquish a lot of that stuff to me but boy what an you know like I said what an experience I can look back on it now and go god I survived I got not only that I had really good maids at the hotel who supplied me with the best toilet paper <laughs> and <laughs> they were so I just I'd leave them some money I just like here here's some you know here's you know because we were getting we were getting paid so well our per diem was, was so good that we were counting it with a ruler. It was like they give us a stack like this. And they hold up a ruler and go, how much you get this week? Holy shit. So- Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. It was nice to pass it along. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, before we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you what you did on Tombstone. Oh, well, that was a David Atherton's show. He was hired to key the makeup department and all the makeup effects also. That was the time that he would hire me when he got a show like that. Like we had done previously with Silent Tongue, Sam Shepard's show. Yeah, it was like he hired my my shop and we did everything out. Of, it was like garage, basically. We did everything out of my garage and we got one script that was incredibly bloody. And we started making all that stuff. And then George Cosmatos came on and took over and then toned everything down. So but we got to do some really nice stuff. And I, I got to do a really nice prosthetic for uh, Michael Bean when he gets shot in the head. Got in the head. I did a prosthetic with a, you know, with the air plug in it and the blood tube and, and all that stuff that like normally on on um, really low budget shows like like a slit throat i'm lucky if i get to paint a red line on something and put some blood on it and all right go out and do the show (laughs) that was a really it was a real pleasure and and michael was just a great great subject to do a live cast on really cool guy i never got to go to set for it so i didn't get to have any of that fun but my job i honestly had to make stuff i mean i was like running all the prosthetics and stuff so somebody had to stay back in la and since it was my house i might as well just kick back and you know and go kick back for five hours get back out (laughs) i did ask you this privately but i wanted to ask so you can elaborate a bit more here uh what was your experience like with Roger Corman on Carnosaur? 
Oh, man. You know, I only talked to him once on the phone about that over at John Baker's shop. I wish I could say that I had an experience with him because I never got to go to set. I got, It's one of those moments. I don't know why John did it. He, like, called me. I left the shop, and he says, I'll see you tomorrow. And I get home, and my phone's ringing. I pick up the phone, and it's John saying, well, I have to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> From the, the drive home, I was. So, I, I mean, I heard the budget got slashed, and I mean, at a hundred dollars a day, I was too expensive. <laughs> I did get to sculpt that T Rex, you know, the one that adorns the puppet version that adorns the next to Jeed Siskel says, "Thumbs up, I like this movie." You know, <laughs> I, I, I got to sculpt that. I mean, that was a really cool thing. We got that show, that movie magic show, out of it too. That was on Discovery Channel at the time. Yeah. And, you know, back when everybody before Face Off ruined everything for everybody. So. <laughs> I couldn't say that honestly and again I shouldn't say that because I have a lot of friends around the show who are really really contented they're really good people so <laughs> we won't hold it against you <laughs> don't want to make anybody mad at me that's all <laughs> that's my goal that's my goal in life I'm just trying not to piss anybody off yeah <laughs> so Jeff you've been doing this for 30 plus years what would you tell 20 year old Jeff what advice would you give yourself ask for more money that's what I tell the 14 year old Jeff when he was on Kingdom of the Spiders going Dremel 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 for nothing you know like <laughs> what that mask and like ask for more don't like you know don't hold back all they can say is no you know or the, all they can say is get out of here <laughs> <laughs> I think I've saved myself a lot of troubles by asking for more money sometimes. So, but That's good same, advice. A lot of it, though, I, I don't know if I would have changed too much because I was so much more idealistic and I was so much more enthusiastic. And I had, you know, like everybody, you know, when you're at that age and you have that much enthusiasm for something, you don't care about anything else. You just want to do it. And I think that was one of my biggest pluses because, you know, people, I guess they, they appreciated it and I didn't ask for much. And I, you know, I asked for only as much as probably anybody else was getting at the time. So yeah, I don't know if I would have changed that much about it. I, you know, I would have said, yeah, maybe at some point start asking for more. So <laughs> I'm going to start using that advice. <laughs> well, actually, John Beekler, here's what John Beekler said about the business. And this is like best. This is the hours are long, but the pay is low. <laughs> Sign me up. Words of wisdom we can take from John Deacon. <laughs> like my dear friend. Well said, John. You know, you've worked on uh, The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is an insanely scary movie. How is it now blending the awesome practical effects that you do with CGI? You know something? I'm all for it as long as the tool, if the tools are used properly. You should know where one should end and one where the other should begin and maybe how you should blend them together because there are some really great illusions being done these days and I can't fault it. And not only that, it saved me so much at times like on the leprechaun's revenge you know or red clover where you know you ask the cg guys can you do the blinks because like I, there's no mechanics and they give me enough money to put mechanics in the head so can you make it blank <laughs> you know? so, so it's it's really a great tool to use and that's how it should be looked at there's no more a tool 
than any other that we have to use. And my last question I like to ask everybody that we have mm-hmm. on the show, what's your go-to movie snack? Like what's that one thing that you have to munch on to make your movie watching experience just perfect? Oh boy, that's a really good question because, you know, I mean the Snickers bar sometimes, maybe in a payday. I've got a, I've got a little bowl of cheddar goldfish here right now, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good choice. The sweet and the savory. I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes, sometimes I like having a beer, you know, especially if I'm watching a spaghetti western. You got to. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, like some rot gut doesn't sound too pleasant. You know, I don't know how those guys did. They'll say that after like, you know, 10 weeks in the desert, they come in and say, oh, my throat is parched. You know, give me some whiskey. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I need a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jeff, before we let you go for the evening, is there anything that you have on the horizon? Any, anything coming up? I worked on a show called Lucky with Bria Grant and Natasha Kermani. I'd worked with on Imitation Girl. And that, came, that came out August 3rd on Blu-ray. Hmm. So that's out stories now or online. It's also streaming, I guess. But I got a script. Actually, I've got a couple of scripts. One I've got, I can't say much about it, but it really sort of harkens back to the 1980s science fiction films, nice. early 1980s. And it's fun too it's like it's not like the stuff that's being done now which is all so pandemic driven so like dour and so dystopian this is more along the lines i'm gonna the only thing i can say it's more along the lines of say like star crash so i'm hoping that we can keep that play and but it'd be a lot it'll be a lot of fun but i just got a script for that and that's supposed to start shooting soon so i gotta get working <laughs> I need a job right now. Yeah. I'm selling right now. So whatever you can do, tell people just buy my buy my paintings. Tell them I need to eat. <laughs> buy the paintings. <laughs> Give this man a job. Hey, at this point, I'm so reasonable too. And I got some cool. I got some, a few cool. <laughs> there you go. I mean, so you know, it's, I'll buy a few from you, dude. My best, you know, so I'll give me a deal, but you know, so, <laughs> but, you know something, honestly, you know, maybe one day I'll be doing that, but for now, we'll still have to see you guys in the movies. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't know if I told you, but we are talking to Charlie in November, so I'll, I'll ask him, you still like Jeff or no? <laughs> tell him hello, you know, but uh, Justin and Daniel and Angelique, it's been really man, it's been fun. Thank you so it's much, been an absolute Bye. pleasure. Thank you. All right, Jeff, you have a good one, man. Bye. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, inviting all you fans of Monsters, Madness, and Magic to check out my podcast, Rants from the Black Lodge. What are we all about? Well, let me lay some inside baseball on you. The first of each month, myself and the Rant Army dissect some of cinema's greatest horror and cult films with in-depth retrospectives. Then on the 15th of each month, we present something a little more lighthearted with a fun watch-along commentary for some of cult film's more underappreciated offerings. 
Rants from the Black Lodge can be found on all major platforms, so hop on over to your app of choice and give us a sub. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop over and check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Oh yeah, and please continue to support all the great content by our friends at Monsters, Madness, and Magic.